1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta has a special connection to the genius of Jim Henson. Thanks to his relationship with the Center for Puppetry Art since its inception, when Henson and Kermit did the ribbon-cutting, Later this hour, we'll hear from museum curator Sarah Dilla about their new exhibition, Masterpiece of Puppetry, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, on view at the Worlds of Puppetry Museum. For Pride Month, we'll listen back to an interview with Popular young adult author Becky Albertalli, her recent novel, Kate in Waiting, is set against the backdrop of a high school Broadway musical production. And we begin with the topic of musicals and pride. If you felt down because nearly all live theaters and concert venues have been closed for over a year... The Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus has something to lift your spirits. Their new summer show will stream Friday and Saturday. It's titled Yas Broadway. Don Milton is the artistic director for the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. He joins us now via Zoom. Don, welcome back to
0: City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I'm gonna tell you, the men of the chorus are gonna be over the moon with the recording of you saying, Yas, Broadway. They're gonna love it. Thank you,
1: that's the first thing I wanted to ask you. For some who may not be familiar with the expression or the spelling of the
0: Yas,
1: will you please (laughs) explain?
0: It's a definitely a, a gay drag culture become just a very normal expression of joy and acceptance. And it was really funny when I named the concert that they said, OK, how many A's? <laughs> and we decided it's always six A's. Always six was the number we
1: chose. Well, thank you. And we certainly need more joy and affirmation. So why not yas? You know it. Why Broadway show tunes for the theme of this concert, Dom? You know,
0: what's better than a gay men's chorus singing Broadway songs? <laughs>
1: Probably nothing, right? Is this one of those stereotypes that people don't mind?
0: It is one of those stereotypes that are, is fully embraced, fully embraced. We, we wanted to have a, this joyful, concert. I found that right now a lot of people are releasing the albums and the the projects they've been writing during the pandemic. And there's a lot of melancholy, but there's so much optimism in the air right now. And this concert has that. I mean, there's like every Atlanta gay men's chorus, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll fall in love, but it's Broadway. So we've added dancing and puppets and witches and magic. It's a very enjoyable, joyful expression of of what, what's to come that we're excited about the next year when we get to emerge from our Christmas. Oh, there's no business like show business. <laughs> you know it, you know. Yesterday I was singing through uh, Before the Parade Passes By, oh. which is one of the songs at the concert. And th- the line, I'm going to get some life back into my life, just hit me over the head.
1: Yeah. Oh, you just gave me chills, and that song always makes me cry. Oh, it's the best. So this is the... Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus, third virtual concert. How will this performance differ from the past two? You mentioned puppets and dancing.
0: <laughs> you know, I think we've grown as we've been doing this. It was so brand new in, when we started in the, in the fall and we, we've gotten better, but you know, our, our December concert had a really great mix of virtual songs with people recording themselves and songs from the past, like favorite songs that we've seen before, but so you get to see the whole chorus and some soloists in small groups. So we're doing that again, but also we got to record two songs live. Oh! that The vaccinated members of the chorus came together and we rehearsed once and recorded once. Oh boy, was that just a, a balm for the soul. It was so marvelous. We were standing apart, we were masked, you know, I walked into that rehearsal being like, well, there's no way it's going to sound good. We haven't sung together in 14 months, but it took them about half an hour to, to find that like rich Atlanta gay men's chorus sound. And, oh, it was just, just great. We recorded Sabbath Prayer from mm. Fiddler on the Roof. Beautiful. You know, a perfect song and Home from The Wiz. Oh, another absolutely perfect number. It's a great arrangement by David Maddox, all these awesome, beautiful jazz, crunchy chords. And it just, it felt like home being together. That is something we missed so much.
1: Was there a
0: live audience? Was there anyone in the audience, though? No. We did it at Morningside Prez, where we've been rehearsing. We started rehearsing there in January of 2020. So we rehearsed one concert there, and then the world shut down. But we were in their sanctuary, which was a perfect size, has beautiful sound, everyone standing, you know, six to 10 feet apart wearing their masks and they took up the whole room. It was 50 guys, (laughs) they they filled up the whole space. So it was just us being together and one time in one week in rehearsal and the next week, we had video recording and audio recording and we, we made beautiful videos of that experience. So that'll be on the concert.
1: It's remarkable that you were able to get that rich sound typical of your chorus while the
0: singers were masked. You're right. We all kind of worried about that—that that it would be difficult to sing for that long in masks. And and to be honest, it wasn't. Before rehearsal, I said, "Anybody, if you're getting too hot in your mask, just step out for a couple minutes, take your mask off, come back in, put it back on." and that just didn't have to happen i think part of it was they were willing to go through it cuz they were so happy to be together that that was probably a piece of the of the experience but the sound was really great they may have had to sing a little more right but they're they're good at that <laughs>
1: Well, I know the Atlanta Opera singers did that beginning last October with their outdoor performances under the tent.
0: They did, and they were phenomenal. They were,
1: and the alliance with Beautiful Blackbird Live, they incorporated the masks into the costumes. Oh, creative people
0: can be very creative. It it has been a time of great ingenuity and creativity. Rehearsing online isn't fun. That's just, rehearsing together in a room, singing in a choir is the best thing in the world, right? There's nothing, it's just endorphins and being together feels so good. Tuning a chord, it just feels brilliant. And we couldn't do that online in the same way, but these guys stuck through it and created great art that is virtual. And then to to get together, to be able to sing in the same room was icing on the cake. (laughs) Well
1: let's talk about this show's lineup and repertoire. How did you decide which Broadway songs to perform?
0: You know there's only about 10,000 great ones So, (laughs) so kind of bringing finding the right arrangements is always a thing for a chorus and you know we have some soloists in small groups and so I had little auditions they made videos of themselves singing and truly it could have been a full concert just the folder of auditions could have been its own cabaret concert so I, i got to pick a few of the ones that were particularly special and beautiful and home has been kind of the central theme of our season that we never chose in december we got to sing in the cathedral where we've been doing our concerts for 25 years we had to record some video in there and that felt like home sang a song called Carrick Fergus on our previous concert. We, we wish we could be back where we cannot be. And that felt like home. And in this concert, um, there's a beautiful song that I thought was a Broadway song, but turns out it was written <laughs> by one of our members, Jay Nguyen, he's a fabulous arranger and composer. And he sent me this song actually back in January. And I thought it was it was a Broadway song, but it's from a cabaret that he wrote himself. And it's a, so I call it a future Broadway song. It's called Don't, Don't You Want to Come Home? and that song feels optimistic like yes we do want to come home we want to emerge from this this chrysalis that we're coming from and then of course i said we're singing home from the whiz which is a perfect piece of music and getting to sing that song together feels like that the home is our community oh
1: i want to tap my ruby slippers
0: together Absolutely. And, and, you know, other songs that that fit that theme, You Will Be Found from Dear Evan Hansen was a song that we did on our our concert, Broadway and Peachtree a few years ago. And it also has that, even when the dark comes crashing through, you will be found. There's optimism in so many of these songs. And, you know, I chose the song We Dance from Once on This Island. We know the gods are happy when the Greeks very underrated musical. If you don't know Once on this Island, you should have a listen. There was a very uh, incredible revival a few years ago. And it's by Aarons and Flaherty who wrote Ragtime. And the opening of the song, a, a, a big storm or a hurricane has just come over this Island. And the opening song is, we dance. What else is there to do? We're dancing to stay alive. We're dancing for joy. We dance to the earth and the water. And we have some great dancers from around Atlanta and around the country who've sent in videos of them dancing. So. Uh, and the guys in the chorus did some dancing it's really great so that that kind of feel of we're going to move out of this and and be better and more joyful and more optimistic for it
1: so you mentioned once on this island which had critical acclaim but i'm not sure it had as much box office as it deserved and of course you cited hello dolly the wiz you include songs in this concert from Mamma Mia and Wicked and Fiddler on the Roof and Pippin. What about the song from Allegiance, like once on this island, less well-known? Less
0: well-known. Our assistant director, David Artati Bino, brought that song to me, and it was in response to the shootings here in Atlanta and the members of the Asian and Pacific Islander community coming together. Uh, gaman, the word, is a, a Japanese term, a Zen Buddhist term. And it's about enduring the seemingly unbearable with patience and dignity and perseverance. And it's uh, powerful. And it is is sung on this concert by the folks of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry in our chorus. Well, that will be poignant. It is, it's very moving.
1: Some shows, some Atlanta venues are opening for in-person events now. Why did the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus decide to make this concert virtual?
0: Early in the pandemic, we learned with great sadness that one of the last things to come back is going to be choral singing. That the amount of aerosol the vapor that we spray when we sing is immense. And that singing is one of the least safe activities. Now, just in the last little bit, the American Choral Directors Association has come through saying that choirs who are fully vaccinated can meet together. And But we know that it's gonna be a little time before people are, fully ready to, to sit in a enclosed space with a whole bunch of singers, and that's okay. We are very optimistic that we're going to be rehearsing together in the fall, that we're going to have our holiday concert, as we always do that first weekend in December at the Cathedral of St. Philip, that we're, we'll be fully back going soon. Early when we started planning this, it could be a hybrid concert, we don't know. And we even thought about doing it outdoors, but it's really hard to mic a choir outdoors. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like you said, the Atlanta Opera did a brilliant job micing their singers, but they all had individual mics and you can't, it's hard to find 60, 70 individual mics to put on all all the singers. Indeed. We're all in in the space of post-production too, which I'm sure you've all experienced at WABE that post-production is a huge amount of the time. And so we've actually, we, we finished recording everything for this concert in the middle of May. And it's we're in that post-production space.
1: Well, let's go on with the show, Don Milton. If anybody can do it, it's you and the Atlantic Gay Men's Chorus.
0: Thank you so very much. Such a pleasure, Lois. Thank you for all you're doing for the arts community. We've got magic to do just for you. We've got miracle plays to play We've got parts to perform, parts to warn kings and things to take
1: by storm As we go along on uh, Magic to do, magic for you Magic to do for you Don Milton, Artistic Director of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus Their Yas Broadway performance will be live-streamed Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a Broadway musical high school production is the setting for a delightful young adult novel by Becky Albertalli. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Lois Wright's. thank you for listening. A Celebration of Friendship is at the heart of Kate in Waiting, the new young adult novel by Becky Albertalli. The book is loaded with humor and an understanding of teenage anxiety. Her characters are often a part of the LGBTQ plus community and come from diverse backgrounds. When I spoke with Becky Albertalli in April, she first introduced us to the main characters, Kate Garfield and her best friend, Anderson Walker.
2: Kate and Anderson are a pair of very chaotic theater kids. They live up in Roswell, uh, Roswell, Georgia, which is where I live. And they go to kind of a fictionalized version of Roswell High School. They are kind of codependent best friends. Their other friends call them out for that. They deny it, but they kind of are codependent a little bit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that they've always loved to do together is to fall in love with the same boys <laughs> like they but it's um, kind of a low risk crush because they end up having these crushes on boys who are not really a part of their lives like this would be you know unattainable boys from summer camp or actors and things like that and so the point of these crushes that they have, is not to eventually have one of them, you know, hook up with this boy. It's completely, like, the boys is irrelevant. It's really just a bonding activity for them. So they compare notes on interactions that they have with him or, like, sightings. And, you know, basically just have that be a thing that they talk about. Kate and Waiting, at the beginning of this story, um, what it's about is when one of these summer camp boys who... Isn't this guy is not supposed to be a part of their lives moving forward? Um, but he ends up moving to Roswell, and he shows up at their school. This very hilarious, casual crush that was like you know very low stakes before suddenly becomes a lot more real for both of them.
1: Kate describes Andy as too cute for this earth. How would you further describe him, his appearance, and the way he carries himself?
2: Yeah, so Anderson is preppy, like, he's very intentional about his style. He'll dress in like cardigans and sometimes like ties, even to school. He is black and he's got like glasses. He wears uh, like framed glasses and he has a cute little Afro. He's just like adorable with dimples and kate absolutely loves him she doesn't have a crush on him she just (laughs) adores him thinks he is you know the best most talented most interesting person Um, and he's one of the most important people in her world
1: you mentioned the setting for this story is a high school in roswell georgia kate andy and their friends their squad are <laughs> theater kids, and the villains are the suburban athletic subtypes. The theater kids refer to as F boys. <laughs> this is radio. We can't say the full name, but they are F boys. There are F girls, too. Why are the theater kids instantly recognizable?
2: I think Kate describes it as something, I may be misquoting myself here, but as each of them move around like they are under their own tiny spotlight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And this book is a love letter to theater, Becky, musical theater in particular. The chapter headings are titled Scenes, and you even include an overture. (laughs) Rather than a prologue, would you talk about the importance of the school musical and how this story unfolds?
2: I don't think this story would be what it is without the musical theater setting that was always a part of it, even from the very beginning. That absolutely comes from my own high school experiences. I went to Riverwood and Sandy Springs and I was absolutely a theater kid, but it was like my whole entire life in high
1: school. Oh,
2: just so central to my identity. It was the place that I felt most at home, being with those people, working on something creative and everybody kind of had their own role to play. And like, we'd be like staying there late for rehearsal and, coming in and doing like set design and tech stuff and it was you know it was just such a cool and unique experience and I think for Kate and waiting it was really important to me to capture that like even beyond just the main characters being theater kids I wanted that setting to feel like it felt as much as I could.
1: Kate thinks of theater as the unrequited love of her life. What has been her experience in school musicals up until now?
2: Oh, poor Kate. So Kate, very based on my own experiences. (laughs) Um, So Kate is perpetually in the background. Townsperson, she has been like just every kind of character with no lines and no name. Absolutely. My experience in the school musicals, I played, uh, (laughs) I played a townsperson in, oh my gosh, in The Music Man. I played a student in Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I played a Harry Ishmaelite in Joseph, New Music, (laughs) Technicolor, Dreamcoat. And I, of course, played a lady-in-waiting in in Once Upon a Mattress, which is the musical that they do in this book.
1: So she loves musicals more than anything. She does have an origin story, as she explains it, with a bad experience in a variety show. How does that color her attitude toward being in the musical?
2: Yeah. Oh, I love this question because this is one of those things that... You know, started out as just this tiny little backstory idea that I had for Kate that ended up becoming something that I consider to be a really important part of her story. So Kate, when she was in, I believe, like eighth grade, her mom, who is a middle school music teacher, like my younger sister, convinced her to perform one of her favorite songs in the middle school variety show, like their talent show. And Kate, who had been kind of perfecting the song Somebody to Love, she'd been watching Ella Enchanted. So it was like the Anne Hathaway version of Somebody to Love. And she gets up there in eighth grade, like dressed like Ella from Ella Enchanted, trying to sing it like Anne Hathaway. And she's absolutely unironically like Kate singing her heart out. Kate has a good voice. So it wasn't like she messed up or anything like that. But there's just something like not cool. There's something overly sincere about her performance that, you know, there are some people in the audience who were pretty unkind about it, as people sometimes are. What ended up happening was this F-boy and F-girl in particular. And she had a crush on that F-boy at the time, which made it worse. But they filmed her. They filmed her at like a really unflattering angle. They got the like crease that was in her hair on the side that she didn't know about, you know. They just basically took a recording of the entire performance, posted it on Instagram, and mocked Kate. And then somebody set up an entire Instagram account where it was like really just unflattering like screen grabs of that performance. Kate is a little bit scarred by that. And she's really excited in Kate and waiting to be cast in a role for the very first time where she is like a character with a name who has solos and like sings songs on stage. But there is a part of her that carries that fear around. It is really scary to put yourself out there creatively, you know, to be mocked for your own sincerity and then to have to go out there and do it again. That's something I experience as an author, and I think I pour that into Kate.
1: Yes, any creative. You put your heart, your whole being, into your art, and it's there in public for anyone to love or hate, and people can be cruel, and kids can be especially cruel. One difference that's pointed out in this story is that in a variety show, you are yourself. In a musical, as one of the characters loves to point out, in a musical, you have the security of being someone else, of saying someone else's words. So I look forward to speaking with you about Inclusivity. Inclusivity is central to your writing, Becky, and that theme is essential to Kate in Waiting. Let's talk about the squad, the circle of close friends that Kate refers to as her squad.
2: Kate and Anderson, who, again, is her very best friend, they are best friends with another pair of best friends, and the four of them together refer to themselves as the squad that's like, they call themselves that semi-ironically, I would say. And the other two members of the squad are two girls named Raina and Brandy. So Raina is a white trans girl who, you know, socially transitioned quite young in elementary school. And Brandy is Mexican, and she, throughout the story, does not use any kind of sexuality label. That's like a big mystery. I mean, it's not a preoccupying mystery, but it's just something that, like, Kate doesn't know. Actually, Kate herself never uses any sexuality labels. And Anderson is Black and gay. Kate is white and Jewish. And I would definitely say the story is not about any of those characteristics or like the experience of being a member of those communities, but that's definitely a part of, you know, each of these characters and who they are and what their experiences have looked like. That's something that's always been really important to me in all of my books.
1: You establish everyone's differences early on in the stories so that we see them without those differences. Is this an ideal you're trying to impress upon young adult readers? Or do you think kids are more accepting of diversity than we realize?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I definitely am not trying to, you know, impress any ideal upon readers. Like, I mean, I love Gen Z. They you know to generalize just tend to be a very thoughtful inclusive group of people so they don't need me kind of telling them to be thoughtful and inclusive i think one of the reasons why i tend to try to make note of some of my characters identities earlier in the book is that we as readers often will default to assuming characters are from majority communities when reading mm. unless stated otherwise. I definitely want to say that Kate is Jewish because I know that going into it, people are not going to assume that she's Jewish unless I say she's Christian or Muslim or something.
1: Author Becky Albert Albertalli, her new young adult novel is Kate in Waiting. So I've Mentioned this book feels like a love letter to musicals. References appear often to various shows, and Kate loves every aspect of theater. Even painting sets is soothing for Kate. I was hoping you would talk about how readers can come up with a playlist from this story.
2: Oh, you know, there actually is a playlist. My UK publisher, um, Penguin UK, gave me the opportunity to create a playlist to go along with it. And I think they expected me to come back with like 10 songs. And I, it was absurd. I think there are like 50 songs or something. on It was like a song for like every chapter or something. I, it's unbelievable how many songs leap out at me like when I go back through this book.
1: Well, minimally, a few musicals that you think that your readers could consult and enjoy listening. I mean, they're probably readers who never seen or heard of Once Upon a Mattress
2: yeah, once I mean, I would definitely recommend like sitting down with the soundtrack, Once Upon a Mattress. I love that musical. It is not new, it is like definitely a musical that has been around for a few decades, but I find it really charming. It's legitimately very funny.
1: Back to Kate and Andy. They share an intense attraction, what they call a communal crutch on um, the new guy at school, Matt. What is the impact of that crush on their friendship?
2: The thing that is really unsettling about this particular crush is the fact that, I mean, not only, you know, his proximity, the fact that he's like still around, but they actually both feel like very connected to him. And they have different moments with him that build upon, you know, these connections that each of them are feeling. And the way that plays out is every time Kate and Matt have a bonding kind of moment or something sort of tips the scales like in her favor. That's really hard for Anderson to watch. And then vice versa. They have no idea what his sexuality is. You know, they don't know him that well. And then they're trying to kind of navigate this. Like they are actively trying to put in some safeguards to protect their friendship. Like they are determined to not let this just blow up their friendship. But both of them are finding that they are holding things back from each other because they don't want to hurt each other. That is really unnerving for Kate in particular. She has kind of internalized this idea that like the way to maintain closeness with somebody is to tell them all your secrets, fully open communication. In her mind, the reason her parents got divorced is because they stopped talking as openly. So she's kind of like on the alert for that. And it is really upsetting to her to find this kind of off limits topic between her and Anderson, her best friend.
1: I must comment on your use of teen lingo. I know your children are way too young for you to learn this vocabulary at home, Becky. (laughs) How do you master this teen vernacular?
2: Oh my gosh. It, It makes me feel like so good when people mention that because I'm not aware that I'm doing that. You know, it's just something that gets incorporated into the voice of these characters. I never feel like I'm trying to deploy like teen slang or anything. It's just, this is how Kate talks. This is how Anderson talks in my head. But certainly that would be something like I am picking up from somewhere. One of the things that was really fun and special about this book is I had my own little squad of consultants, basically. There's a real Kate. There is a real Anderson. uh, There's a real Matt. There's, you know, and (laughs) like this is a completely fictional story. So this is not a story that is about these uh, real human people. I would never do that to them, (laughs) but they did let me use their names. They were... Absolutely the most brilliant, funny, uh, interesting people. Um, And so if I had questions, like there were times when, oh, and they're also like my neighbors and like babysitter and stuff. um, (laughs) I did not not go to Roswell High School and like pluck out students at random. (laughs) So if I had a question about what would an F-boy wear to a Friday night party or something, I would get back the most exquisite details and they made it into the story. Like things like the way they wear their hats and stuff, not pulling their hats like all the way down on their heads. Like that was described to me with such
1: precision
2: (laughs) that like it's just these are the kind of details that I just absolutely eat up.
1: The popular young adult author Becky Albertalli, her new book is Kate in Waiting. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. In 1982, when the brilliant duo of Jim Henson and Frank Oz decided to expand their film repertoire beyond their popular Muppets, they brought a fantasy world to life with the movie The Dark Crystal*. Almost 40 years later, the world of Throck graced our screens again with the 2019 Netflix series, The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. The Netflix series presented us with new puppet characters facing new challenges. And the actual puppets from the Netflix series are coming to Atlanta's Center for Puppetry Arts. Sarah Dilla is the museum director for the center, and she joins us now via Zoom. Sarah, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you for having me, Lois. Well, this
1: is exciting for Dark Crystal fans. How long have you been working on this show?
3: Well, the center received a donation from the Jim Henson Company of a selection of puppets and crops from the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance around the end of last year, around fall 2020. And so we have had this in the works since then. We are extremely excited to launch into a summer of new programming and theater productions kind of recovering from this period of pandemics and how arts organizations have been impacted. And so this is one of the things we're launching this summer is a special exhibition that showcases these puppets and props from the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance.
1: The Age of Resistance was a prequel taking place in the reimagined world of Thra. How does this show bring people into that world?
3: So in this exhibition, we try to give a bit of a backstory so that those who are part of that strong fan base and those who are not familiar with the story can all find something to enjoy and appreciate and learn from it. And so you'll see a lot of kind of comparisons between the two productions, the 1982 feature film and the 2019 series. This project, Age of Resistance, uh, really is a, a huge undertaking and a huge labor of love and labor of artistry for a whole community of puppeteers and artists. The production included 75 sets all created to to take viewers into different, different climates and zones of the world of Thra. It employed 500 artists of all different types, 83 of whom were puppeteers, and there were 170 puppets in this production. So, Something that we want visitors to take away is truly the massive amount of labor and creativity that projects like this entail. And in a museum where we have a lot of puppets, it's important for us to introduce people to how this works and to the amount of engineering and ingenuity and just really tinkering and creativity that go into creating live action puppetry. So folks kind of can understand that they're much more than just stuffed animals or creepy creatures that sit in, <laughs> sit on a shell.
1: Well, how does this exhibition at the center display the inner workings of the puppets?
3: I think something special about this exhibition is That there is a base point for comparison. It is a reboot of a story that was one of Jim Henson's forays into creating entire fantastical worlds with puppetry and sets. And so you really can see in looking at those puppets and props from the 1982 film and comparing them to now, you can see how things changed, but also how the field and the process of puppetry has stayed the same. We have a, a section in the exhibition where we look at the construction of arms and hands on Skeksis puppets. And there are a series of arms that show the, the how the puppet builders put together the arm to be able to have it articulate and move in the right way. And you can see the product of the arm in 1982, and you can see the product of the arm from the more recent Netflix series. And they're very interesting in terms of how the mechanisms are still very analog and and are full of triggers and pulleys and everything.
1: This is fascinating. I mean, you're really getting into technology here, as well as the inner workings of puppets.
3: Yes, definitely technology. And it's in, it's the layer that has changed, that has applied a new aspect onto puppetry today. And you can see that in the exhibition and in Age of Resistance, the series, uh, because it was such an, a large live action undertaking. And the producers had a lot of discussion in advance of committing to the series of whether it would be easier or better to produce such a feature in today's world with just computer graphics and animation like so many of us are used to seeing. But the decision was made to do it all in live-action puppetry. Um, And then there was kind of just a tweak added at the end to apply computer graphics on top of the filmed puppets. That gave it this little extra kind of new look compared to the 1982 film. So there is so much technology, both traditional and analog and kind of New and current embedded in in this production.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Sarah Dilla, director of the World of Puppetry Museum at Atlanta Center for Puppetry Arts. The new exhibition is The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Sir, can you tell us which Age of Resistance characters, puppets, will be shown in this exhibition?
3: Yes, absolutely. We have a series of really diverse types of characters, from the big ones in the film to kind of minor background creatures in this exhibition, and that gives you really a sense of the level of craft involved in every moving creature you see on screen in this show, because even the smallest background bug-like thing has so much detail put into it. We have one Skeksis and one Mystic on display in this exhibition, and of course the Mystic and Skeksis, for those unfamiliar with the Dark Crystal story, are the creatures that carry the good versus evil dichotomy of the story. And in puppet form, they are really fascinating creatures and fascinating productions. Um, They're both body puppets. So the puppeteer has to actually just enter this massive armature and costume, and it takes the person inside, as well as people outside. And it takes nowadays in Age of Resistance, one of these technology aspects is VR goggles so that the puppeteer in this giant costume can see what they're doing. Um, So (laughs) they are quite remarkable creations to look at in their level of detail, but also their level of engineering and ingenuity. So those are um, two big characters that folks can look to see. And we also have a lot of really fun creatures on display from the production, from Rookier, one of the Gelfling, to a Grunak, which is a creature that was created for the original feature film in 1982, but never made it into the final production and was kind of reprised for this series. Ah. So there are a lot of great little stories within each creature that we have on display.
1: I heard that some of the puppets on display are miniatures that are used when the main characters are putting on their puppet show. Would you tell us more about how the miniatures represent in real life?
3: Yeah, that's a great aspect of our exhibition. Is a case where we show a series of miniature puppets that were featured in episode seven of The Age of Resistance. And there's a great scene in that episode where a mystic and a Skeksis come together to teach the main gelfling about the history of Thra. And they choose a puppet show in very meta fashion to have have that history lesson. So... The miniature puppets that we have in our collection are everything from a miniature gelfling to a Skeksis, a mystic, Agra, and some of these familiar characters from the story. And they are all used in the series to kind of explain the history of their world. The main miniature is a, a gelfling who in the series is puppeteered by Barnaby Dixon, who has come to fame in the puppetry world through YouTube videos and a very signature style of puppeteering small characters with his hands. So that's Mm. one of the features in, in that section.
1: Sarah, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that in the fall of 2020, the Henson Organization wanted to donate some of the puppets. Will this exhibition be incorporated into the permanent collection at the museum?
3: Yes, so the puppets featured and the props featured in this exhibition are now part of the permanent collection at the Center for Puppetry Arts. The Jim Henson Company and the family of the hensons has been such an integral force in the center's history and of course are present still they were here in our founding in 1978 and their donation of of about 600 of foundational Henson puppets contributed to our opening of the renovated larger museum galleries in 2015. And so the Henson Company stays involved regularly in in the center. And this is just one of the latest contributions. So these puppets will join the about 100 other puppets and props that we have in the collection from the original Dark Crystal. So When I say these numbers of items, you know, we have full puppets, but we also have lots of puppet parts and pieces and items that show the whole process of building a puppet and creating a production.
1: Can you share a bit about the -the behind-the-scenes footage included in this show?
3: We have some footage and video form in our gallery to accompany the exhibition, and it's includes interviews and clips from kind of making of behind-the-scenes footage of creating the Age of Resistance. And the talking points in the footage give a great glimpse into some of the backstories behind creating this series and how it relates to that 1982 production and some of the challenges in rebooting it. There's a great Clip in the footage that I always like, which is talking about the challenge of the Gelfling, which are one of the main characters in the show in both the original feature and the series. And that the challenge of the Gelfling in 1982 is the same kind of challenge that those producing the show have had now, which is kind of dealing with a small head and fitting a hand in all of the mechanisms in the small head. So I think the footage gives a really interesting view into some of those things that folks building puppets or performing puppets consider that maybe those of us who haven't experienced that would never have thought about.
1: Sarah Dilla, director of the Worlds of Puppetry Museum, located within the Center for Puppetry Arts, their new exhibition is Masterpiece of Puppetry, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. It opens this weekend and will be on view through the end of October. More information will be on our website, wabe.org citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes will be your host. She'll talk with Lisibu Grant, the Atlanta indie rock band. Summer Evans is our producer, and Shelley Knavey is our engineer. Kevin Rinker is City Lights engineer emeritus, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.